Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. If you want perspective on the food industry from someone who has worked in it for over 25 years with experience in retail, food service, cooperatives, farmers markets, urban agriculture, community organizing, and food policy, this is the episode for you. This conversation is going to blow your mind and challenge some of your beliefs and assumptions, no matter where you sit in the good food spectrum. My guest is Errol Schweitzer, who pulls no punches. It was refreshing to talk to someone who is not afraid to say it exactly like he sees it. You might not agree with everything he says, and the language at times is definitely not kid-friendly. But what Errol says in this episode is important because he provides a perspective we don't hear often. He talks about the food system from the lens of people, more specifically, people who make a living working in it. Errol challenges several current solutions to our broken food system, specifically solutions to tackle factory farming, starting with the belief that markets can fix everything that's wrong with the food system. He shares why he believes that the plant-based movement has lost sight of the core values that launched it and how most brands have now surrendered to the industrial food machine. He also thinks the demand for some new products and technologies like cell-based meat are being manufactured by investors and not really reflective of what consumers want or what the food system needs. Most importantly, Errol talks about how the plant-based movement needs to reconcile the intersectionality between race and class. As I said earlier, you may not agree with everything Errol has to say. In fact, I'm not sure I do either. For example, I'm not convinced that all biotech in food is necessarily bad, or that venture-backed technology-driven solutions cannot play a role in building more equity and sustainability in the food system. I just think it's very complicated and that technology does depend on who controls it and how it is being deployed. Errol favors agroecological systems as a solution and shares why he believes regenerative agriculture is just a watered-down version of it. He also explains why solutions like agroecology don't get traction because it doesn't overlay well into market fundamentalism. Errol and I ended up covering a lot of ground over nearly two hours, so I decided to split up our conversation into two separate episodes. I still think we only began to scratch the surface of some of the issues we discussed, and I had to leave out a lot, including a deep dive on regenerative agriculture 
and some other solutions. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and don't forget to check out part two as well. Errol Schweitzer, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Errol, I, I know you played an instrumental role in bringing uh, plant-based brands like Beyond Meat and Kite Hill and Dea into Whole Foods in your time there. So I do want to hear about that, but maybe we can just start off with a general background of your experience in the food industry and, and what uh, what kind of work did you do there and, and what are you doing? And maybe we can then transition into what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Um I've been in and around the food industry since the early 90s, um, started out in food service. Um, I was a sandwich maker and a grill cook and a line server in order to help pay uh, college tuition, uh, SUNY Binghamton back in the 90s. And then I also worked at the local on-campus food co-op, which is volunteer run. Um, never really thought when I was you know, showing up there uh, to stock soy milk and make sure the uh, the tofu wasn't getting bad, uh, that that's what I would do with my life. Uh, but, but here we are. Um, I worked at CSAs and farmers markets, community gardens. I was a community organizer for a long time. I've worked in warehouses and fulfillment centers. Um, I've driven an ambulance and I was an EMT for, for several years. Um, I was also a DJ, which was one of my fun, <laughs> fun gigs when I was in uh, college. Um, and then, um, I worked retail for a long time. I was at Whole Foods for around 14 years, started as a stock clerk, uh, was a grocery buyer, a regional purchasing manager. And then I was on the national team leading the, um, national grocery program for almost seven years, uh, which is the last role that I played there. And I left Whole Foods over five years ago now, and I've been a board member, partner, co-founder, mentor, advisor, friend, frenemy pain in the ass to about 25 natural products companies, uh, food retailers, cannabis uh, companies. And then um, I'm also really interested in food policy. So I've been on the Austin policy, food policy board. Um, I've been on the board of several NGOs, including Farm Share Austin and uh, Demeter Biodynamic. Um, and I'm still a board member of Non-GMO Project. Um, and so, so I'm still a community organizer. And I uh, actually just won an award last year from Hemp Industry Association for like lifetime achievement. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> like, hey, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> you can retire yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, I've been uh, in and around the food industry for 25 years. And I've done other stuff too, but it seems to be the most consistent thing in my life and what I keep getting drawn back to. So you must have seen a lot of shifts and, and changes over the years, I can imagine. And uh... Dude, I was vegan in the 90s. That's what I'll say. Before the cool kids <laughs> thought it was cool. Um, How hard it was to be vegan in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, what were you eating? Tofu all the time? Like tofu and Eden soy. Um, <laughs> I, I was vegan before Silk came out, and then Silk came out, and I was pretty much drinking Silk. I ate a lot of Amy's burritos. <laughs> <laughs> are you one of those people who are like into bands before they become big, and uh, and then you're like, now nah, everyone's into it, so I'm moving on to the next I was thing. definitely a bit of an elitist, <laughs> purist. I was punk hardcore kid in the nineties. So yeah, not anymore though. Like I love the fact that run the jewels is huge, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, I love the fact that people listen to anti-flag and bad religion now. So I don't, I don't have that issue. Like I used to, 
Um, but way back then, yeah, I sort of, I was like, oh, too big for me now. I got to move on to the next cool thing. But that gets old. So. <laughs> and you grew up in, in the Bronx in New York, right? So Yeah, in the Bronx. Uh, Bronx Park East, right near the zoo. Uh, went to public school. Shout out to PS96, JHS 135 and the Bronx High School of Science. Um, my family still lives in the Allerton Williamsbridge neighborhood. Um, I'm really homesick now. I haven't been back in the Bronx in a year and a half uh, because of this, this damn pandemic and all the anti-maskers and uh, plague bearers who keep spreading the, the disease. So um, I'm hoping to get back as soon as, as, soon as things uh, ease up a bit as, as I do miss home. So yeah, I grew up going to the Bronx Zoo and the Botanical Garden grew up playing, um, you know, uh, football and, uh, baseball out in the parks and, uh, you know, uh, the urban lifestyle. It's, it's kind of nice to have that access when you're a kid, you know, just jump on the train, you go anywhere. So growing up in the city, wouldn't have had it any other way. And, and, and Texas now, which is obviously very different. And I'm, I'm assuming Whole Foods brought you to Texas. Yeah. I came to, uh, Austin with Whole Foods twice, uh, once to help open the, um, Lamar store as a grocery buyer. Uh, then I went, left and I went to take a job up in New York to run the Northeast grocery region for Whole Foods. And then I was recruited to take another job back in Austin on the national team. And then uh, within a year, my boss had pretty much given me his job and I had applied and interviewed for it. Um, so yeah, I've been back in Austin now for, I think like uh, over a dozen years, which is crazy to think that I've lived in the South that long. And uh pretty much raised my kids. My wife's a midwife here. She's got a thriving practice. Um, so it's, it's a nice balance to have. And um, I love the winters here, but man, the summer's coming and it stresses me out. I can't take the heat. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. Let's talk about what you've been, been doing now. I mean, I, I heard of you. I can't believe we haven't run into each other in one of these trade shows. I probably saw you, but didn't know who you were um, over the years because I've been going I've not obviously been in the food space for as long as you have, but I've been going to expo the expos uh, and the specialty food shows for the last oh yeah five six years at least uh, maybe longer. And uh, I came across your podcast, the Checkout. Which uh, first and foremost, I'm going to kick off the conversation by saying everyone should check out to check out. Uh, it's an amazing show, and and I a few episodes in, I, I had to get in touch and figure out who you were and why you were. Uh, talking about the things you were doing, and so let's start off with that. What do you What are you really passionate about now? And and maybe give some context about why you even launched the Checkout Radio, the the podcast, and and what are you hoping to do with that project? And and in general, right now in the food industry. Yeah, sure. I mean, just as context for that, I mean, in, in my in my last role at Whole Foods, I mean, I helped launch over six thousand products. I, I helped reinvent grocery. I even got an award from Supermarket News for top grocery. Uh, disruptor or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I was always keenly aware of how things work in the grocery industry, you know, operations, retail, supply chain, you know, how things get from point A to point B. And I, I helped, you know, enable that, you know, my team, I, you know, it was a we who, who did all that, you know, launching products like Beyond Meat and Kite Hill and Dea and Gardein um, and, and Miyoko's and um, working with Follow Your Heart and, you know, all those old school brands. And then, you know, doing a lot with you mainly raise animal products and helping set up non-GMO supply chains and organic supply chains and trying to work on fair trade and creating a halal segment, um, you know, developing natural kosher, you name it, right? Um, but the thing that ties it all together are, are people who do the work, you know, people who actually stock the shelves, who drive the trucks, who, 
you know, run the forklifts. And um, the pandemic to me um, really was a, a um, singular sort of awakening of like, I need to talk more about that because I've done that. Um, I'm still an operator. I still work with, with companies and doing all this, but so much of my formative time in the industry, whether it was working in a co-op or working in stores, working in a warehouse, work warehouses, um, you know, driving an ambulance, stocking shelves. I could tell you what my piece rate was, how fast I could stock, um, you know, you know, dragging a uh, pallet jack around stores at three in the morning. You know, that's how shit gets done. And I really feel that this country disrespects and, and just shits on essential workers. I think they treat um, work workers in the supply chain like crap. I think most of the big companies, uh, retail, fulfillment, logistics, unless you know folks organize or force them to do right, um, they backslide really easily. And so for me, it's like deeply personal because you know I came into the industry like at the the right time. Like I was able to move around and I moved up. Yeah, of course I worked hard. And you know what? I'm also kind of I'm kind of smart too. I, I picked up the business acumen stuff. I never took a business school class. I never read any Harvard Business Review BS. I figured that shit out, right? But that doesn't mean that I look down on the people who are still doing the day jobs because that's how it all happens. And the, you know, I gotta also tell you, it's like the the type of community and the camaraderie that I felt in those years and working in stores is so much so much deeper than than the type of relationships I have, you know, working with brands or at board levels, right? And um, like once again, my my motivation was that I think. This country treats its essential workers terribly. Uh, folks aren't paid well enough, um, you know, benefits and sick leave and all the stuff that folks have to fight for should be guaranteed just for doing what they do. It's hard work. It's, it's tough. Um, you have to have a range of skills. Um, I actually wrote a column in Forbes a few months ago called This One's for the Clerks, just detailing the type of skills you need to have on a daily basis in order to do your job well, not get fired. <laughs> and so the checkout um, was a partnership with my friend Evan Driscoll, who's a longtime farmer, local food activist, um, you know, entrepreneur consultant, uh, food shed investor. Like uh, Evan's a solid, solid human being, and he's a podcast producer. And he offered to do all the back end stuff, and I'd handle the creative work and you know, select and interview guests. And um, the way it's evolved, and it, it's not like we intended, but the way it's evolved is really leaning towards um, really lending um, that platform to be the voice for essential workers, advocates, researchers, um, activists, uh, rank and file folks who, who are in it, who are doing it. Uh, we've got three episodes we're releasing, four episodes we're releasing this, this week, which will probably be before your, this episode airs of two entrepreneurs that I work closely with who've done their time, who are, who are just wonderful human beings, a two-part episode with a, a union president and a rank-and-file retail clerk. Oh, no, we're talking to the unions, right? I mean, <laughs> folks get so freaked out. It's like, you should listen to what these folks have to say. And then, you know, I'm doing my own weekly special, like these sort of editorials where I just sort of unload about things that I'm reading because I'm an obsessive reader I must read 150 articles a week. I'm usually reading two or three books at a time about the food industry or economics or history. And so I just, you know, a couple of things are on my mind. And then um, I'm, I'm writing a couple of pieces a, a month for Forbes as a tie-in. They've 
they've reached out and have offered to publish some of my, my ideas, which is pretty amazing because <laughs> I'm not a big Forbes reader, um, but they have an amazing platform and community that they're developing. So, so yeah, the, the checkout, um, we're in the, we're in the forties now in terms of numbers of episodes, and we've got at least that many in the pipeline uh, for folks to stay tuned to. So thanks for the plug. Yeah. And are you trying to keep the focus of that podcast um, largely around uh, workers' rights issues? And, uh, or are you, I mean, I've, I've heard some episodes that tend, have started maybe there and have gone way beyond. Uh, and I think that's the, the beauty and the challenge of talking about food systems and, and the food industry in general, right? It's, it's impossible to touch on one aspect of it without inadvertently starting to talk about everything. And the next thing you know, you're discussing capitalism um, and having to deal with, <laughs> deal with uh, things that, so that, <laughs> that we, can't, <laughs> we can't change too much. Um, oh, can we, right? So I, when you look at the food system and, and just generally what's happening in the food industry these days, I mean, here we are, I, I want to provide some context. I, and I and I think for anyone who's heard this podcast before, none of this is going to be new. But I I wanted to con contextualize this because this is the place I'm coming from, which is we, you know, it, it, we can't just do business as usual and and uh, approach the food industry and the the things we need in it as uh, we approach, say, any other industry that doesn't have this massive impact on the planet. So I was. I was going to say transportation, but transportation has an impact on the planet. So, you know, f the food system overall, at, by most estimates, is about, what, 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions is the, is the single most destructive force. Yet we depend on this entire system globally to, to feed us. Um, and it currently do, does a pretty bad job at feeding us, and it does a pretty bad job at um, taking care of the people who work within that system. So that's the, that's the place we're in. And... To add some other layer of context to it is that we are kind of at a point where we we sort of need to do something. It's 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 not doing a good job of feeding the world. It is threatening uh, our natural. I mean, it's draining our natural resources. It's it's making climate change happen faster. Um, and so it's become an existential imperative for us to, for at least those with who kind of work within this this industry, to step up and. And, and find new solutions. And so that's the, the context, the lens through which I tend to look at things, as in I'm, less, I'm least concerned about what the next trend is if that trend doesn't actually bring about some change. Uh, we're just wasting time and we're just, you know, it's almost embarrassing to talk about food trends these days without, and when people do that without talking about sustainability uh, or equity and, and even health for that matter. So... That's my context. Now, giving, given that context, what do you think isn't being addressed right now? Because there's too many problems. Which ones do we tackle first? And how do we do this within this time horizon that we have? Yeah, I'll get this going by quoting or misquoting Abe Lincoln, paraphrasing, like, labor is the superior of capital. You know, capital is important, but it's subsumed to, to the value of labor. And he he uh, said or wrote this in the 1860s. Um, and for me, the food system discussion needs to be centered around workers because if it's not, it's centered around capital and investors, period. You know, cause I know, cause I've been on that other side. It's like, you, you, you're talking to the folks 
who are building brands and moving money around. You know, that's all that innovation happens, right? Except the product doesn't happen without people in the supply chain, you know, you know, picking it, processing it, moving it from point A to B to Z. Um, you know, the overlay on that is climate change and climate crisis. And really what, what the coronavirus pandemic has done is given us a glimpse into the future of what does a food system look like in a crisis moment? Because it is a deeply fragile food system. And I don't like using the word resilience. Um, my friend Raj Patel has coached me on this and give a shout out to Raj. Um, I actually like the concept of anti-fragility. Uh, Nassim Tlaib's, uh, you know, some of his writings are really interesting about it. It's like, we need to create an anti-fragile food system. Um, and the way I see that is very different than the food system, food industry that I've worked in. And a lot of what we're doing now with the, the, the podcast, the checkout, I was trying to critique aspects of it, but critiquing it from the inside. It's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a professional journalist or researcher. I'm an operator. It's like, I've come in, <laughs> I've touched most of this, I've developed or, 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 or messed up a lot of this myself. Um, so it's very first person narrative, but it's centered around essential workers because they're the ones who, who do the work, but they're the ones who have suffered the most. And we're talking about upwards of 60,000 coronavirus infections and, and meat um, and food processing, hundreds of deaths uh, across multiple retailers, almost every major retailer, Walmart, Kroger, Amazon, Whole Foods, um, you know, Safeway, all have had deaths of, of essential workers. Um, you have a logistics fulfillment supply chain now, which is deeply exploitative. It's, it's a, you have a delivery ecosystem, which is essentially digital sharecropping and precariousness. Um, you know, for me, it's like, this is not what folks like me set out to build. I think that there are a lot of folks in the food industry who've tuned into the podcast. like, oh, thanks for saying this. Thanks for saying what I actually feel, but can't verbalize it or, you know, or I'm too scared to, to say it. Um, you know, and of, of course, you know, I get, I get some criticisms too, and that's fine. Um, but to me, it's really about centering the conversation around workers, but being very aware that we're in a crisis. We just came out of one and there is much, much bigger crisis pending. And that, that is climate change. And that is, you know, wholesale, uh, upturning of, of where and how food is grown. Um, you know, so I'd like to talk a bit about that. There's a lot to unpack because it's not as simple as saying, uh, do this one thing and this is an easy fix because it's a very, we have a very complex, fragile food system. I mean, and I'll say this, you know, we, were, we had winter storm Uri here down in Austin. Uh, we were without water for a week. You know, the, the grocery stores were wiped. I mean, Texas needs to invest in some goddamn plows. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there are no plows and we can get anywhere. Thankfully, we have like, we have a Subaru, but still, no, nobody down here knows how to drive in snow. Point is, though, it's like the food system collapsed twice within one year with, with stores running out of product, supply chains being totally stressed. Um, and so what we have is, is suboptimal and good conditions, suboptimal in that there's still 20 or 30% food insecurity um, in, in certain neighborhoods uh, in Austin and in most areas around this country. Um, you obviously have a ton of food waste, up to a third of food is still thrown out. So to say that like you have a food system which is purely market driven, which has like this sort of charitable outlet. I mean, it's to me, it's like you have to argue with me to tell me that is not as bad as things got under Soviet uh, communism. Because I think like we're, we're sort of we're sort of gaining ground very rapidly on watching how poor this sort of fundamentalism around the market, just like they had a fundamentalism around state control is, right? 
And so um, the folks who pay for that are the folks who, who don't have income, don't have access, or who are doing it day to day, trying to keep it all running. And um, you know, to me, that's, that's not fair. And um, it, it pisses me off. And I think we need to fix that. Well, yeah. Where do I begin? <laughs> so <laughs> let's, 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 let's tackle some of these uh, uh, current solutions that are being offered, right? Because mm-hmm. I completely agree with what you just said. And we have not done a good enough job so far. We've, in a way, been talking about these problems for for decades now, and have been maybe we've not been talking about it. We've been aware of these problems for decades, uh, and I would say in the last five ten years, first the conversation about climate change started to emerge in the food space, and I think, and you're com- completely right about this. Last year's um, I would say last year's pandemic. The pandemic is still <laughs> happening. Still <in> <laughs> uh, the, the last year's um, I would say supply chain disruptions in the food industry um, has brought this issue to, into clearer focus to a lot for a lot of people who previously maybe didn't stop to think about it. So, and that's starting to happen socially in, in a number of areas. We're we're starting to become more aware of these um, of these systems that kind of repeat the same patterns again and again, decade after decade. Uh, and we we tend to come up with band-aid solutions that are all presented as the next big thing that's going to fix it all. And we end up eventually in the same place again and again. So let's let's examine, let's just call it the good food movement or the, the movement to, to, to transform our food system or disrupt it. What, let's break down some of those ideas. Like pick one that you think I can, or I can offer many to you because there's so many now. Um, but there are a few dominant ones that are being presented as the solution to our climate crisis. And I'm going to maybe I'll give you a further uh, filter to add to it. Let's start with animal agriculture as one big thing, right? Because we all know factory farming is terrible. I'm not going to spew all those facts. I've done that too many times in this podcast. Um, uh, you can read the book that I wrote about this, but uh, factory farming is bad. We know that. It's 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 not good for the animals. It's not good for the workers in the meatpacking plants. It's uh, not good for the communities around these farms. Um, it is terrible for our health because of all the antibiotics and hormones and everything else dumped into it. It's a disaster. Yet, there's no slowing down at the moment when it comes to factory farming. As As far as I know, the industry is just ramping up production while we are all claiming we're working on fixing problems in the system. So alternatives that have been, pro- have been proposed are regenerative agriculture on one end. We have the other category, which is now being called alternative proteins, but it includes plant-based meats and cheeses and eggs. And uh, and then you, of course, have the cell-based or self-cultivated uh, research work that's being done. And I call it research work because it's still a few years away from being real businesses and with products in the market. Um, and then there are some other fermentation, other technologies. Uh, these are potential solutions to tackle the problem of uh, factory farming to slow down the pace of that growth. As as we're told, the demand for meat continues to rise in the U.S. and across the world. I gave you a lot there to respond to, but let's start yeah, with let's, one let's of the solutions. Let's, let's, well, there, there's a lot to talk about. I don't think we're going to disagree about factory farming. I've been working to 
develop alternatives to that now for most of my career. I launched Beyond Meat and Kite Hill and, and Gardein and all these, these brands. Hell, I mean, I worked so closely with Beyond Meat, you know, we once had to withdraw their product because they weren't using grass approved, generally regarded as safe ingredients. Uh, but, you know, we, we got them back on shelf and they're obviously doing great. Um, so, you know, I think l- let's tackle plant-based because I think there's a lot of froth in, in the sort of plant-based alternate ag, alternate proteins. Uh, and then, you know, let's, let's just put the regenerative ag piece aside. We should talk about that. But I want to go after plant-based first because honestly, I think the movement's lost the script. I, I think they forgot what they're here for. I think they're right now they're here for Bill Gates. I think they're here for Silicon Valley billionaires. I, I think they forgot about the consumer. I think they forgot about true sustainability. When you look at who brought plant-based to the party, it was organic consumers. It was whole food ingredient plant-based consumers. Uh, it was folks who wanted an alternative, something different than industrial scale farming. Not just talking about animal ag but industrial monoculture of GMO corn and GMO soy, GMO canola, you know, all that stuff that's still creating a dead zone in, in, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico that's still, you know, losing tons of topsoil per acre in Iowa. I mean, read Tom Philpott's book, Perilous Bounty, for, for more gory details. And plant-based community is, is surrendering to that industrial narrative um, by just saying, well, we're going to replace one terrible system, terrible industrial system of meat production, we're going to take out the middleman, the middleman as in the cows or the pigs or the chickens, and we're just going to feed all this industrial byproducts to people directly in the form of veggie burgers. Oh, and maybe we'll put some special sauce on it with some, you know, squeezed out of some genetically modified yeast. So what, what you're saying is you're, you're taking one terrible system away and you're, you're replacing it really with another. And that's why it's, you, you can make it so cheap or you're discounting your products, right? And I, you know, I'm going to give Beyond Meat some credit because they actually have stayed non-GMO, right? They, they've mm-hmm. actually stayed using um, pure SP protein. Um, and you know, a lot of these other products, uh, other companies, I think Light Life's been stepping up for it. But so much of the rhetoric these days is about bullshit. It's about stuff that doesn't exist or stuff that is literally just as bad as what we have now, which to me does not get us to what we need, which is food sovereignty which is the control of the food system by the people in a culturally appropriate manner, as opposed to what we're seeing now with alternate protein, which is essentially just trying to take the green revolution, which, is, which failed. Geographers and historians have pointed out that everything about the, G, uh, the green revolution is as Vandana Shiva said, was a myth. It didn't save anybody. All it did was you know, create export models uh, you know, for Western, you know, big food companies, you know, to dump grains and to create seed monopolies and agrochemical monopolies. And all, all that energy is merging with Silicon Valley investors to say, here's cell-based agriculture, here's cultivated meat, here's these alternate proteins. Like I said, none of them really exist. There's a couple that have been approved. It's not consumer driven. That's the thing. I, I come from a demand side place. Like I was a category manager. My job, my livelihood was based on providing food that people wanted, that if folks were to vote on it with their dollars, and I'm not saying that's the solution, I'm saying that was my job, was to make sure that we were selling what people wanted. Um, And I'll say this, when we first put Beyond Meat on shelf, our plant-based meat category declined in sales because it took a while to convince people to buy it because they had alternatives. They had Light Life, they had Gardein, they had Eves. 
they had tofu, right? They, there was a lot of stuff and it took a while for folks to adapt. And what you're seeing is this, this real manufactured demand really from investors. Cause I do consulting calls about this. I'll get cons- calls from like consulting groups saying we need to understand the demand for the plant-based or egg industry. And I was like, what plant-based egg industry? There's like two products. Mm. <laughs> and then there's tofu. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't exist. Like literally I spent two hours within a week on the phone with two investor groups explaining, yes, there's a couple of products. There's some interesting ideas. There's not an industry. This is, we've had this conversation for years about, can you replace eggs? Well, that's up to the consumer, but it's also a question of regulation, which we'll get to later, mm. right? In terms of the plant-based world, they're saying, we're going to take uh, these new, um, untested, really unexplored technologies of cell cultivation. I have two questions. I have two questions for you and your, your listeners. You know. um, so I work out. I lift weights. I lift weights five days a week. I have to, I have to eat protein. Um, and I do eat eggs now. I do eat some, some organic meat. Um, and to me, that's how I build protein. Like that's how I build, build muscle. Not much. I'm still, you know, a buck 50 soaking wet. What I'm saying, like you're taking cell-based agriculture, you're cultivating these cells in a Petri dish in a growth medium. So I have two questions. What's in the growth medium and what's the nutrient conversion, Right. Because what you're telling me is that if you're going to sell a billion dollars worth of cell-based something, chicken, call it chicken, because it's cloned from a chicken cell, um, you're feeding it something. How many tons of X is going into that nutrient broth to produce how many tons of your cell-based meat? And what is the source? Where is it coming from? It, It can't just be air and water. It can't just be sunlight, right? These, you know, this isn't photosynthesis, but even with photosynthesis, plants need some sort of growth medium, like their roots in the soil, or in the case of hydroponics, you know, coconut husks, for instance. So you're saying there's probably going to be an aggregate demand for hundreds of millions of tons of whatever the hell is in that growth medium. And my guess, my guess, it's going to be cheap. It's going to be GMO soy, GMO corn, GMO sugar, which is a thing that's coming or salt water from the ocean. I don't know. You know, it's, it's got to be readily available. So to me, when, when I see all the alternate ag plant-based, uh, you know, froth, and the fact that the big meat companies, aka the enemy, Tyson, JBS, Smithfield, saying, oh, we're investing in this space too. We're deeply interested in it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's big, big red flag, folks. You've lost the script. This isn't what we set out to do. We've become who we despise. I should say, not we, you. <laughs> well, I've got a lot. I, I know what I'm against. <laughs> and I think that's, that's one way to look at it. But here's yeah. one other quick thing, Neil. Yeah. Here's the other thing that I think the plant-based movement needs to reconcile. And that's the intersectionality of race and class. Mm. Really. So let me tell you, when I was a vegan, um, the dude who convinced me to go vegan was a, a black Muslim coworker of mine. I was an EMT. We were both EMTs. And he saw me eating some chicken. Um, and I was working at Yankee Stadium at the time as an EMT. He said, why are you eating that dead bird grown in chemicals? Like he just laid into me <laughs> and like horrified. And he was right. It took me like months to really, I was like, oh, wow. So, I, you know, it, it was one of my awakenings. And you know who else was a big, big inspiration for me was the comedian Dick Gregory. He talked about fasting and plant-based uh, health. And he was in New York at the time. And I was, I, you know, I, I used to hear him go to like marches, big inspiration, um, Brian Terry, you know, about 10 years ago, published, published Afro Vegan. 
uh, Amy Breeze Harper, um, sister vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so much of like veganism is what they call white veganism. And it's like Alicia Silverstone and PETA. And it's completely, completely erases the experience of so many people of color. But he- here's what it's really missing is the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Imagine if vegans, plant-based advocates were to partner with supply chain workers. Like I said, it was hundreds of meat plant workers died. And there was speed ups. It was, it was uh, Trump approved, regulatory approved speed ups, which by the way, they've slowed down some of those. And it, it created a demand of almost 20% a demand increase in meat last year. There was so much readily available mm. cheap meat, right? But meat plant workers died for that, right? And we know the pigs died. We know the cows died. Why is it that animal advocates care more about animals than supply chain workers who are primarily black, Latin, Hispanic, or immigrant working in these plants? And imagine if they could partner up. And I'm saying they don't always have the same goals because these folks want jobs, right? Yep. And there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a difference here. But initially, like if you're saying, yes, factory farming is evil and these meat processing plants are evil and exploitive, like I think there needs to be a reconciliation here mm. in, in the animal. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the plant-based movement of who their allies are. If I, when I see folks kissing up to Bill Gates, to me, they've lost their minds. That guy's a huckster and a grifter. He, he hasn't said a word of truth, right? But you're saying you're not talking to the folks in, in these facilities who are suffering and dying in order to uphold the system so they can make a living, right? To me, I think it's, it's a huge miss and it's, it's, really, it's really heartless and, and, and clueless. And that, that's what I think we need to talk about in addition to, like I said, you know, there's the, the capital and the investment side. It's, it's, there's a race and class aspect to, to the food system. And I, I haven't even talked about food access and, and food justice. Like, we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. But, you know, what's your next question? There, Neil? Yeah, I, I'm just going to respond to that quickly uh, because I just want to clarify one thing. Uh, one is, uh, let's, let's take it backwards. I think there's three separate things that you touched on there, and I really appreciate all the detail you've gone into uh, on the, I'll start with the last one about, I think you're hundred percent right. There has to be, uh, we, we have to address this race class. Um, and yes, food access is tied into that. Worker conditions is tied into that. Understanding where your food comes from, where that packaged product that you're buying, how was it produced? What went into it? Who are the people who touched it? It's a, it's, it's, we don't ha- ask enough questions about that in the plan-based movement. And I think often when we do ask the questions, it's, it's easily dismissed as we'll get there because we're starting off by first taking the animal off. And I, and I understand that these are smaller companies that are all trying to compete and uh, we, they're not operating within a, within a perfect system. So I'm hundred percent with you on that one. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. That can be a whole podcast in itself, especially if you layer in food sovereignty and, and food access. And um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And I think we would we would agree on most of it. Uh, on the second piece, uh, you mentioned cell-based uh, agriculture. I want to separate that, if you can even call that agriculture. I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion on it. It's called Frankenfood. And I don't even know enough about it, honestly, to even have a, 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 an, inter- an interesting discussion. I've had conversations with a few founders of those companies on my podcast, and it, those were in the early days. Um, in some ways, we're still in the early days. Um, 
And so I would separate that into a completely different category because that to me is biotechnology. It is uh, totally, totally biotechnology. And we just don't know enough at GMO this point. 2.0. Yeah, I need to GMO do a lot 2.0. more reading before I can I can say what my what I think. I say are the just read everything by Michelle Simon. She knows, and Michelle Simon and Alan Lewis. I learned so much from those folks. They they follow that industry so closely. But go ahead, Neil. Perfect. And and yeah, and I know Michelle and I and I and I know she's been talking about that for years now. Um a lot more to connect on on the cell based stuff. Let's bring it back down to the plant base. And I think there's there's a lot you mentioned there that I, I want I want to make sure that listeners of this podcast who work within the plant based movement or the industry, perhaps are investors, entrepreneurs themselves hear what you actually said there. And I, and I don't want it to get lost in the two other, because the third one's interconnected, but the second one's a slightly separate because it's it's more on cell-based. And I think what you mentioned there in terms of, and you started off with this, which is they've, they've kind of lost the plot. I think maybe use that phrase. Um, I've been, I've said similar things in the sense that I think they've lost the plot because I think there's too much. Uh, this, the answer can't be, we need more companies and more, more products. Um, it has to be it has to be a better strategy around this versus more is just more more it doesn't necessarily mean less meat dairy and eggs being consumed it just means more companies being launched more uh investors putting money into these companies and how many of them especially when you layer in the realities of food distribution and how retail works how many of them will actually be able to be uh, in distribution and sell products once they get to places like oh Whole Foods, you know, it's yeah, that's a whole nother layer. Which I know companies that's, that have been that's, around that's for that's what I do. I, yeah, I mean, let me tell you, that's <laughs> it's huge bottleneck. There's, and there's and, and I've talked cash. to some of these entrepreneurs who you know, and mm-hmm. I, uh, I I I love someone coming up with an idea that they believe is groundbreaking and have the guts to go out there and raise money and do it. But I worry they don't quite know what those other layers are that they're going to, which act, oh the, you know, they know how to manufacture a product. That doesn't mean you know how to get that product into someone's grocery cart and and the number oh, yeah. of hoops you've got to jump through to get there. And I've learned only a lot more about that in the last few years. And, and lately I've actually been working more directly in that space where mm-hmm. like, there's no room for all these products. In no. A, no. I mean, <laughs> you know, folks will have to, you know, Shopify, you know, or maybe some other e-commerce channels, but yeah. there really isn't. It's crazy when I somebody occasionally posts like a chart on LinkedIn of all the plant-based companies, yeah. and I actually I look for logos I recognize, let alone we'll see in syndicated data. And it's you know there's a correction coming, but this is one of the problems with this Neil is that a lot of food investors, uh, family offices, PE, um, it's it's high risk, high reward. It's not a long-term vision of the food system saying we want to invest in the food system to fix it. No, they're fucking gambling. They're saying, we're going to throw our money at 20 different things. And if we're lucky, one of them hits. And that's what's going on. And a lot of these entrepreneurs are, are the butt of that joke. I mean, that's, that's what's sad is like a lot of folks who are like committed and sincere and have a good idea and there's some money for them, right? But I also want to say that money isn't going to other aspects of the food system, like folks who are trying to do more whole food based products or uh, less frothy, you know, trendy products, right? Or the fact that like why, why is there so much money in the private equity markets anyway? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a whole other, you know taxation and uh, securities and exchange question. I mean, when you see the the amount of capital that these folks have, like I didn't even realize. Like when I was at Whole Foods, just 
how wealthy these funds are, just the sheer amount of wealth and power and influence they therefore have. And that's what you're seeing with the direction the plant-based movement is going. It's being driven by investors. It's being driven by big capital, by these big houses, by um, you know the Peter Thiels and the Bill Gates and the um, Andreessen, you know, all those Silicon Valley and you know big biotech money. That's not where the customers came from. The customers came from product, you know, trends that wanted whole food, more, you know, sustainable, uh, ethically produced alternates to this evil factory farm system, right? And so, like I said, we're, we can't overlay one on top of the other and expect anything to change other than that, oh, maybe we'll be slaughtering less animals, except for the fact that it's not working and there's still more meat consumption. You know, it's, it's you, you got to have a lot of nerve in a year when meat consumption went up 19% to say within five years, meat consumption will be down 35%. I saw some study come out. Like, who are you fooling? To me, that, that is, you know, that's the foxes watching their own vegan hen house. You know, you can't be publishing that stuff and be that disconnected from how actually people are, are buying product and to be that disconnected from A, the regulatory process. Because here's the other side of this mm. is that, I, I personally believe that meat, as in all products, need to have a true cost accounting model um, for how they're produced, how they're distributed, um, with all the, the costs of that production internalized. And it, to me, it would mean a complete recalculation of the cost of food and a reappropriation of subsidies, probably more, much more towards the consumption side. You know, and even Vilsack has come around saying that, you know, maybe all these production subsidies are wrong. I mean, the, the Trump white nationalists gave $65 billion in subsidies to farmers because of their, their trade war ridiculousness, right? So they just literally conventional ag is essentially a public utility. Mm-hmm. It's underwritten by your tax dollars to grow GMO and, and export crops and animal feed for factory farm agriculture. So the cheapness of meat is partially underwritten by, mm-hmm. by, by the public benefit, but also uh, by the public purse, but it doesn't take into account, like I said, the dead zones in the Gulf, which is both the feed as well as um, you know agriculture for human consumption. Um, it obviously doesn't take into account the labor portion, you know, and the exploitation and punishment of of workers, right? Um, to say nothing of the health, the downstream health effects, and you know the cost to uh, to actually treat you know diet related conditions uh, and stress related conditions, because it's it's not one or the other, right? So. There, to me, there's a whole recalculation of that. And that's one of the reasons why, for me, the plant-based movement needs to be out of that discussion. They're, and what they're doing is just digging further in saying, oh, no, we want to have an industrial system that's plant-based. And we're going to just use all these GMOs. You know, they're, they're essentially animal feed, turn them into tasty burgers, spray them with some special sauce and say, here, fixed it. We got the solution. And what I'm saying is, well, that, you're, you're dead wrong. We're going to have the same problems. Um, and I think that there needs to not only be, you know, you know, regulatory and accounting uh, issues, but also, you know, just a re-understanding of what food system needs to be about. That's where I talk about food sovereignty. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what we're talking about on the food podcast, uh, the, the checkout podcast. And we haven't talked much about another concept. And this is where I don't even want to talk too much about regenerative ag mm-hmm. because I think it's watered down. I think it's a watered down market-based concept of, of agroecology. And agroecology is the science of sustainable agriculture. Agroecology has a ton of literature and research about how to actually produce food um, at scale for for broad consumption 
um, with the, the rights and dignity of supply chain workers intact, right? Including, you know, peasant agriculture in the global South and, you know, farm workers in the global North, like the United States, uh, but growing product, you know, in diverse ecosystems, intercropping, rotational grazing, um, you know, minimal use of animals and definitely not at the, the, the factory farm level, but mostly, mostly dependent on, you know, what we call plants, <laughs> plant-based agriculture, like a diverse set of plants, whether it's agroforestry or versions of biodynamic agriculture, um, you know, you know, more regenerative organic agriculture, like all those things sort of fit into it. Um, and I, I recommend and welcome your, your listeners to check out Agroecology. There's a number of great books like Miguel Altieri, uh, Peter Rossett, Vandana Shiva. Um, you know, a number of authors have written about this for, you know, Stephen Gleesman has been writing about it for almost 40 years. I mean, this isn't a new concept, but it's something that doesn't overlay perfectly into a marketplace, market-based fundamentalism that a lot of these you know, plant-based big shot investors are coming in saying, oh, this is what we got to do. Just, you know, overlay one system onto another and everything's fixed. See, it's great. We're making a billion dollars. Fuck you. So and that's really not what we're about. And I also think that much of the plant-based movement should reconsider. It, it, it shouldn't just be about highly processed, homogenous, you know, stuff that maybe resembles meat if you close your mouth, you know, close your eyes and, and chew slowly, right? Chew fast. Um, you know, and that's a big part of it. Like I'm part of that. Like I was a co-founder of Good Catch. I helped develop the formula and the branding and like, hell yeah, I want to save the oceans. Here's a way let's, let's do non-GMO pea protein and add a little soy and, you know, a little mechanical extrusion and other processes to make it resemble fish. And, you know, kind of does. Right. And that's just one aspect of it because me, I would personally eat rather eat tons of different beans and lentils, you know, tons of different fruits and vegetables. I mean, that's really what our diet should consist of. And especially the fact that like, if you do, you grow this in an agroecological method, like the sheer diversity of what you can actually be consuming and what mm -hmm. supply chains could look like to me, that's where all the potential is. And that's a lot of what we're trying to build towards, not only with the podcast, but with some of the writing I've done. I, I wrote a, um, I wrote an op-ed on, on the checkout podcast and actually a letter I've circulated internally in Austin about what does a public food sector look like and in, in order to like back up the work of food banks and to offset the fragility in retail and wholesale supply chain. So go, go on the checkout. It's why, why we need a public food sector, right? Because to me, that's an agroecological solution uh, because you're recognizing the diversity and the anti-fragility of, of a way of producing, distributing food as opposed to repair, you know, replacing one broken system with another. Um, and really it's so that, you know, Bill Gates and his cronies are, are laughing all the way to the bank. Right. And that, that's really the way it is because that's what they're about. And all these investors want a huge return. Mm -hmm. Right. So when they're not telling you what's in the growth medium or, or they're saying, oh, we could just do plant-based by just, you know, you know, uh, combining a GMO soy and GMO corn and processed potato starch. Um, you know, it's because that return is going to be gargantuan because it fits right into the current paradigm. And I'm not against profit. Mm -hmm. I'm not against wealth generation. I'm very much for how it's distributed and shared. Oh, hell yeah. Like there should be much fairer distribution of it. But I'm not here to say that I'm against anybody in making some good money and doing this because, you know, I think that's fine. And hell, I'd be a hypocrite because I'm still in the industry trying to survive too. But I do think it needs to be fairly distributed. And we all know that those big shot investors and the Bill Gates and the big tech and Silicon Valley 
they're pirates. It's extractive. You look at DoorDash, you look at Uber, mm. you look at Amazon. It's a highly racialized form of capitalism where a small group of investors and executives at the very top who are mostly white make a ton of bank, huge windfalls, while the vast majority of the supply chain, you know, especially you know, working class folks are very much you know, leaning towards black, Latin, Hispanic, immigrant, white, are making pennies or in precarious jobs, barely making minimum wage or their industries are being undercut by this, by, by digital rates. Um, and so it's, it's a huge issue. And we have to see that this is all part of the problem here and that we're feeding right into it by saying, we just need industrial plant-based. I don't think you're saying that plant-based alternatives to animal-based products are necessarily a bad thing, right? I, and I don't think that's what you're saying. I mean, I, if, if if I'm wrong about that, let me know now. Are you you're not you don't you're not against no, I mean, plant based? I, I co-founded Good Good Catch. I launched Beyond Meat. I launched Daya. I launched yeah. Kite Hill. I launched Gardein. I launched you know name a brand. Yeah. So yeah, I absolutely believe we should grow the market share and bring more of that product in. But I mean, I'm also on the board and I'm a co-owner of a bean company, mm. <laughs> of a lentil and and grain company. Like honestly, that's kind of where my heart is. Like mm. we we need whole food nutrition. You know. Um, you know, and the, the retailers I work with are fresh focused retailers, whether it's good eggs or a small operation called farmhouse delivery, um, you know, are focused on selling real food. And yeah, we'll have some, some of the plant-based analogs. Of course I support that. I, I ultimately believe in choice and that variety and, you know, optimizing that assortment based on what customers want. But, um, if it was ideologically leaning, I would say mm. eat real food, eat, eat stuff that is minimally processed that's actually cheaper because you don't have all those markups involved with the processing and, you know, the investors taking their, their take. Right. Um, and then, you know, focus mostly on organic or products grown without synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, um, you know, if possible. And that's also why I'm, I'm very much pro snap. I'm pro mm -hmm. public food sector and I'm pro um, food access in terms of subsidizing the cost of, of food at the, at the level of the consumer um, especially for folks who are food insecure um, or have uh, had trouble making income th these past couple of years, yeah. you know, we don't want we don't want to make this more elitist than it needs to be. I think you know I think the companies, if if there's folks listening, or uh, generally my my thought on this is that I think they need everyone needs to do better. I think there are a lot of well-meaning people. I know many of them personally in this movement. The companies there are several companies that are doing it the right way and are trying to stick to their um, principles, even though they know they can source cheaper ingredients and perhaps um, launch more products more quickly if they just went the easy way. And so there's a, if I recall, even like six years ago, six, five, five years ago, five, six years ago, that's largely who was working in this space. They were very passion-driven um who came into these businesses with a clear um, clear intention and value set out and were focused on trying to develop uh, a truly better way to produce food that didn't involve animals, firstly, but then secondly, was also going to keep improving incrementally on all other factors, whether it is nutrition, whether it's packaging, whether it's ingredient sourcing. And, you know, you talk, go talk to someone like Miyoko's, for example, she's She's thinking about these issues. Hey, I've known Miyoko since she was doing Zensoy. 
Wow. Okay, you know how longer than me. Zen Turkey. I think it was Zen Turkey, right? It was like in the nineties. That was I was before my time. It was like nineties, like turn of the millennium. Like yeah, that's when I first met her. She was doing the Zen Turkey. It was like the alternate to Tofurky. It actually tasted better. (laughs) I still love my Tofurky too, but I'm just saying that she had she had and man, I I love what Miyoko Shinner is doing. I mean, she's a goddess. She does amazing work. And so you know, I I want to clarify that it isn't we aren't putting everyone into the same bucket. There is a lot of really smart, amazing people who are working incredibly hard and have been working incredibly hard to put out amazing products in the market. And several of them are now finally reaching a point where, mm-hmm. you know, they, 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 they have a real business and they they have widespread distribution and they have manufacturing capabilities. I remember visiting Miyoko in her first facility, which was a, you know, by most estimates, a pretty small room where she was uh, she was making her cheese uh, versus what she has right now. And that's just a sign of, you know, and I've covered the story of these companies over the last four years now, many who have um, continued to grow in advance, some who don't exist anymore. And I guess that leads me to my next question, which is won't, if you're right about this, and if you, if you think that the investors are just, and partly let's, and I, I I love Beyond Meat as a product, and I've, I've known the folks there since the beginning. Um, but partly it was the IPO of Beyond Meat that then set in motion this frenzy, right? This feeding frenzy on like, where's the next unicorn in the plant-based space? We better not miss out on that. Whether you made money from Beyond Meat or you didn't, you want to get in on the no, next I one. I have no stake in Beyond Meat. So to, to be clear, I do not have any vested interest there. I still have a small stake in Good Catch, which I helped co-found. Um, but you know, I, look, there, there's a couple things here. First, not everybody gets to be mayor. Not, not everybody. There's a reason why they call them unicorns because unicorns don't exist. They're myths. <laughs> so it's like that, that whole conversation to me is like, you know, circular argument. It's like all these investors missed out on beyond Meat because They didn't want to give them money in the private markets. And that's mm-hmm. why beyond Meat went to the public markets. I mean, those guys struggled for a decade. They were an overnight success in 10 years. Right. So, no, it's not going to be replicable. But here's the other thing. And this this is this is where I'm, I'm, I'm going to appeal to folks on a personal level. It's OK to be a lifer. It's OK to work for folks to, to work for what you believe in and keep doing it to you either retire or drop dead on your feet. If you love it and you believe in it, there's not a lot of us who are going to cash in at that level for that windfall and check out and retire. Okay. And it's okay to reset your expectations to say, I love doing this. I love food. I love the industry. I want to fix things. I want to work with other folks who believe in fixing the food system, who believe in fixing food ingredients, who are spreading the plant-based vegan gospel. And that's okay. There's just so many of the folks that I'm friends with in the food industry are, are lifers. They've been in it 15, 20 years. And I've seen them at every trade show or now Zoom call, <laughs> you know, they've bounced around. Some of them have done well with some companies. Others are still struggling, you know, not to mention like all the folks in retail, you know, and, you know, grocery retail is a trillion dollar industry employing millions and millions of workers, you know, it's okay to be a part of that community. And that's why a lot of what we're talking about on my podcast is around solidarity. You know, if you work for a living, you know, if you sell your labor for a living, you probably want to think of what you have in common with other folks who are selling their labor and aren't just moving money around. And so that, that, that's a bit of the way I tie in, I think, the, the labor piece. And even entrepreneurs, like, quote, entrepreneurs, like who are you know, starting a business and, you know, do it the right way. Treat your people well. You know, distribute the wealth. You know, 
create products that, that customers want, create products that, you know, have value beyond, you know, what investors valuation looks like, you know, the ingredients, you know, the way stuff was grown, where it was grown, how it was sourced. I mean, to me, that's, that's the heart of the natural product sector, right? And so when I see the Silicon Valley tech bros with their Patagonia vests, you know, you know, riding in saying, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna say, like, get the fuck out of here. You know what the fuck you're talking about? Who are you? Just go away. I don't care. Nobody wants you around. But I have a ton of empathy for the, the folks out there who are just trying to do the right thing and build products and create brands and especially those who are sharing the wealth. I mean, that's, that's really where my heart's at, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and look, you know, that's why I'm still in it. I mean, I work with a ton of companies, you know, and some doing better than others. Managed, they've all managed to survive the pandemic, you know, some better than others as well. Um, but, you know, I also see that there's so much unfairness right now and there's so, there's so much suffering. There's, there's so much... Um, you know, disparity in, in ownership and wealth and governance. And let's not add to that by just saying being plant-based will fix everything. We're here to fix climate change. So therefore, fuck all this other stuff. I'm here to, you know, it's like, that's just not how, that's, that's the Grindelwald solution. So if you're into Harry Potter, that's like, that's like, <laughs> hey, we're here for the greater good. And you know what? We all know how that works out in the end, folks. <laughs> you should watch the WeWork documentary. But, you know, I, I, there's so much wisdom. And I think a lot of people won't necessarily pick up on all of it, which, which is unfortunate, which is, and I'm just going to underscore the last point that you mentioned, which is be clear about what problems you're solving. Be humble about the things that you don't know necessarily and acknowledge where you have a long way to go. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.